Knowing what not to do, knowing when not to get in, knowing when to walk away is more valuable and more important than knowing what to do. Thank you for joining the Passive Wealth Strategies podcast. I'm here today with Greg Dickerson. Greg is a very accomplished real estate investor. He's bought, developed, sold almost $300 million worth of real estate over his now 23-year career. He's not based too far from me. He's in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, and I'm here in Richmond. So for those of y'all who make it to the meetup, we're looking forward to having him speak for us here in Richmond later this year in 2019. So we're going to talk about a variety of asset classes today. It's going to be a great discussion because Greg is highly experienced in all of them. So Greg, there are so many asset classes. We'll talk about probably multifamily, self-storage, and mobile home parks, any others that you want to discuss. My first question really to get us started is, and is it probably going to be a tough question, right now, what is your favorite asset class for investing in, considering the various risk profiles and the current market conditions, all that stuff? What do you prefer right now? So I'm a developer, first and foremost. So I'm opportunistic. So I approach things a little differently. But if I were a passive investor, cash flow investor, buy and hold investor, I think right now, as always, multifamily is probably the safest type of real estate. And within multifamily, probably A and B are the safest asset classes to be in right now. I know that's contrary to what a lot of people think. But in an economic event, those are actually safer, better, more insulated assets than C and D assets from all of the things that can affect that renter. So in general, I've always liked multifamily. People need a place to live first and foremost. So no matter what the economy is doing, people need to pay rent. They have to live. Even if our complete economic monetary system collapsed, you could trade chickens for rent, right? You could trade services for rent. So if you own real estate that people need that they have to live in, you have something you can barter with, something you can trade. So within commercial real estate, there's six types. You know, you have multifamily, you have office, retail, hospitality, land, and industrial. So those are your six types of real estate. Within that, you have class A, B, C, D. There's some E's and F's too, but we don't talk about those. But really, it's A, B, C, D. Second to that, and again, this is all location-based too. So I don't like multifamily in every market and every location. Real estate is hyper-local all the way down. When I say hyper-local, what I mean, it's down to the block, the street, the neighborhood. So if you ask me in this neighborhood in Richmond, Churchill, what do I like? It might be different than what I like at Short Pump, right? So I'm very scientific and detail-oriented when it comes to my approach to the types and classes of real estate I like, all the way down to the neighborhood level. So I'll qualify all that. But on a general national scale, obviously, multifamily is good. Retail strip center would probably be second. Everybody, no matter what the economic cycle is, they need the core services of dry cleaning, nails, hair. They're going to get their coffee. They're going to buy a donut. They're going to go you know, get Chipotle. You know, Those guys are going to weather an economic storm. If your salary gets cut in half, your stock portfolio goes out the window, you're going to go buy a $10 burrito instead of going to Outback or going to Ruth's Chris or something like that. You're going to go to the fast, casual, cheap places and you're going to do that because it's the only thing you can afford to do. So those are going to thrive. The McDonald's of the world, the Chipotle's of the world, the Panera's of the world, they weather economic cycles and they have the ability to lower their prices to meet the demand in an economic event. So those are the kind of the core assets that are going to do well in general, regardless of the economic cycles. Mobile home parks are great. The problem with a mobile home park is you need a lot of lots because, you know, it's cheap lot rent. So you need big parks. And there's really not very many third party management companies out there that efficiently and effectively manage those. So you have to build that infrastructure. So I love the asset. 
but I don't want to operate it. So I kind of stay away from those. Storage is great. Storage weathered 2009 pretty well. And again, that's area specific. It depends on the market you're in and the demand. So if you can find storage facilities that uh, in markets that are in demand or build them, you know, those are great assets to own. You're not dealing with tenants. You're dealing with personal property. So people are different about those things. They put stuff in there, they lock it up, they forget it, and the money just flows. So those can be some great assets. And, you know, again, you need big ones because, you know, they're cheap rent at the end of the day. You need a thousand of those to make any kind of a nice cash flow. You need a thousand mobile home lots to make any kind of nice cash flow. Whereas a couple hundred apartment units can generate a lot more cash flow than a thousand, you know, storage units. But storage units are a little bit easier to deal with. Lot rent is a little bit easier to deal with than an apartment. You don't have the turnover. You don't have a lot of the personnel issues that you can have with a multifamily. When it comes to office, I like the type of office that a professional needs that cannot work out of their house. So when you think about who can't work out of their house, you're talking about doctors, chiropractors, dentists, orthodontists, periodontists, things like that, physical therapists, eh, maybe some of them could, but some hairstylists can't always work out of their house. And that's not really office, that's more retail, but you want to think on that level, who can't work out of their house? And those are the types of buildings and office properties you want to own. And again, it just all depends. Downtown Charlotte, downtown New York, LA, you know, your core markets, your primary markets, a lot of those asset types and classes are pretty safe because, you know, those are pretty big companies and they need some office space. But you really got to pay attention to where we're going as an economy and as a society, as it pertains to real estate with the outsourcing that's going on, with the co-working office situation that's going on. Every Starbucks now is a co-working office, right? That just happens to serve coffee. I don't think they ever realized what they were really going to become. You're really renting office space. You're not drinking coffee. It's really an interesting business model. And then with Amazon and all the other online purchasing in the retail sector. So that's my general philosophy. I think it would probably be multifamily first. It would probably be Obviously, mobile home and storage second, retail third, office would be last. But again, I'm going after a professional office that cannot go work out of their house. That's very interesting. I mean, there's a lot to cover there. We could just make a blanket statement that with any of these asset classes across the board, doesn't matter. Location matters. We could put that topic to bed. Location is always important no matter what you're investing in. And you know, as we work down the list a little bit, you know, we talk about multifamily all the time here on passive wealth strategy. So we'll, we'll skip that for now. You've got some important skills I want to make sure and, and knowledge that I want to make sure we cover in our time together. So retail, you talk about that and you mentioned Amazon, you mentioned the change in the times and everything. How do investors secure themselves and also feel secure about future-proofing their retail investments? Because historically, most people have been wrong about projecting the influence of online retail on our society. You know, the, the people that accurately predicted you're going to be ordering your groceries through your phone in whatever, 10, 15 years, they were nut bars. When you talk to anybody, no, that's never going to happen. And, and look at, you know, Amazon just bought Whole Foods the other year and you can order your groceries online. So it's going to pick them up. But to avoid rambling, how do you really accurately predict the future of retail investing? Yeah. So again, you got to look at what are the core services that aren't going to go away. And, you know, food delivery goes way back, right? So there was the Swanson food trucks where people ordered food online. So that's not, well, not online, but they didn't go to the store to get it, certain things. But generally speaking, people are going to go get produce. They want to pick that. They're going to go get their meats. They want to pick that. So the interesting thing is how the big grocery store may or may not shift. So there's still a lot of the population that can't 
buy online and won't buy online when it comes to food. So grocery anchored centers are very insulated, I think. You're going to need grocery stores. And, you know, that whole landscape's changing. You know, Walmart's doing the little neighborhood grocery centers. People don't realize it, but they're the number one grocer in the, in the country, maybe in the world. But definitely in the United States, Walmart is the number one grocer, you know, and their number one item is bananas, <laughs> believe it or not. It's really interesting. So I think grocery centered retail stores and again, the little things that people need, the core services are, aren't going to go away. People are going to need that dry cleaning done. People are going to need their hair, their nails. They're going to need the food items, the coffee. So when you think about those types of things, but you want to be, again, smart, you want to be where they're in demand, where there's a lot of rooftops to support that. So if there's not enough rooftops, you don't want to build or own something where there's very little support. You want to make sure there's traffic, there's built-in drivers and demographics that are going to support that retail use. So that's kind of how you insulate yourself against any kind of a downturn. And you make sure that the tenant mix in the building will not be able to be outsourced or become obsolete. There's always going to be a certain amount of people that want to go buy clothes and try them on. I don't buy clothes online. Even though I know what I like to wear and it's the same pair of pants, same shorts, I still like to go in the store because each pair fits a little different. I hate ordering something and then having to return it. Even though it's not simple, you put it back in the box, put the label they give you and take I'd rather just go to the store, try it on one and done. You know, I go in, I get what I need and I leave. So there's still certain types of things in every retail environment that, that are going to thrive and survive. The retail mall landscape is going to be interesting to watch. It went from the enclosed mall, those are dying, to the outdoor mixed, like a short pump town center kind of a thing where you've got mixed use living above, you know, retail below and a little bit of office. So it's going to be interesting to see how those power centers and those outdoor lifestyle centers change as the economy evolves, but grocery stores aren't going away. There are going to be a lot of people ordering a lot of things online, but some of those core things that people still like to put their hands on, touch, smell, thumping the fruit, listening to it, people like to do that. So they're still going to be around, but more and more people are ordering it online and picking it up. You know, they're not getting it shipped, but grocery stores are delivering. So they are essentially going to become retail outlets for the Amazons. So what Amazon did in buying Whole Foods is they're trying to get closer to you as a distribution center facility. So their whole model is being able to get it to you quicker so that they can gain market share. That's why they bought Whole Foods. And also they're changing the model now where you just put it in your cart and it scans on your phone. You don't even have to check out anymore. And I don't know about you, but I use the self-checkout pretty much every time I go to the store because it's I go every day. I get it fresh. So I think that kind of thing is changing with people. There's more and more people shopping like that where they go get something fresh or a little bit of stuff every day. They might get core staples monthly or weekly or whatever, but I go every day. I just, I drive by the store. And you know, that's the other interesting thing. The most popular residential neighborhoods are the ones that are located close to grocery stores. People want to live close to that so they can do that. So those are the things to watch. You just watch the trends. What are you doing? What are the people that you know doing? Watch their behaviors. Kind of like Warren Buffett, right? He invests in companies that aren't going anywhere. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, you know, companies like that that have been around forever that everybody uses, everybody needs that are pretty much safe. So you got to do the same thing in real estate. What's not going away? What can't be outsourced? What can't be taken online completely? You have to think about it. Mm, yeah. Those are all good points. And, you know, you mentioned about I kind of alluded to this, like wanting to feel the produce and such. And, you know, I definitely relate to that. It's not that big of an inconvenience to go and look at the lettuce I'm buying or something, you know, like that. We'll see how that changes. But, you know, from the passive investing side, when we're, you know, maybe investing in a retail syndication, what do we look for in a retail syndicator or a retail syndication opportunity to mitigate some of that risk and make sure they've done all of their proper due diligence? What are some steps we can take there? 
Yeah. So due diligence is more than just the numbers. So it goes all the way down to the type of asset, the class of asset, the neighborhood it's in, the year, age, type of construction, deferred maintenance, all of that, as well as the numbers. So just like any syndication, any operator, you want a solid operator that has a track record that's had some successful exits. You know, that's the one thing that a lot of people forget is I can get up there and say, hey, I've got $400 million worth of assets that I bought this year. Well, I don't have any exits. I don't have any proof of return of capital, much less return on capital, right? So you want somebody that has multiple exits, has a track record of returning, not only returning capital, because again, when you're doing passive investments and if you're a syndicator operator, your investors, number one, their first, a lot of people don't realize this, the first thing they're interested in is preservation of capital. That's the first thing. It's not making money. I don't want to lose any money. That's number one. So once you've satisfied that, then tell me how I'm going to make money. And then once you satisfy that, tell me who else you've made money for. So in an operator, that's what you look for. People that are organized, efficient, professional, they respond. So it's all the little things. How quickly do they get back to you? How are they with answering your questions? Do you get along with them? Do your personalities mesh? Do the types of assets they're buying interest you? Like some people love class C and D. Some people want A's and B's. The higher net worth individuals are looking for the bond properties. They're looking for the A and B properties that are more, again, insulated. They want preservation of capital. So they're looking for the nicer assets that aren't at risk in an economic event. So generally, you can tell a lot by an individual by how they respond, how quickly do they get back to you? How do they get back to you? How do they write an email? What does the email look like? How's their phone message sound? How do they present themselves? How do they talk? How do they dress? All of those things will tell you a lot about an individual. So those are the things I look for in operators that uh, I do business with. Fantastic. I'm big on the email responsiveness. That goes a long way for me as you know, when I'm passively investing, if folks are on top of it, I mean, I don't need an essay and a, an email response, but you know, something that answers the questions and is sufficiently thorough is, is, and quick is fantastic. Timely is the key. Yeah. Timely is the key. Yeah. And then, you know, the next asset class that's not multifamily, that's particularly of interest to me here, and, and I'd love to pick your brain about is self-storage. I recently started investing in that myself. Like the business a lot. You've been around far longer than I have in this real estate investing world. Where are we now compared to in the self-storage world, where we've been in the past, this, you know, this market cycle? And then generally, you know, what can we look out for? Let's get into that. The thinking nationwide is that we're undersupplied. So that's what the data would tell you, that we're undersupplied. You know, there's so many square foot of storage needed per person, right, in the country. And I can't remember what that is, 300 square feet a person or whatever, per thousand people. I don't have it in front of me, but those numbers are easily found. You know, how many square foot of storage is required per population base? So those numbers will tell you that we're undersupplied. So there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline, a lot of stuff in development. It's a fragmented market, meaning... There's a lot of small owner operators spread all over the country. So there's a lot of opportunities. A lot of those owners are older and they're retiring and they're divesting themselves of those assets, which is creates unique opportunities because they have had that cash flow their whole lives and they don't know what they're going to do with lump sums, a lot of them. So a lot of them are willing to finance because they want to keep that cash flow coming in. So there's a lot of creative deals that can be made on the mom and pop storage facilities. A lot of REITs are getting in the game and have gotten in the game. But I have some friends in the business at a very high level locally that go to these REIT conferences and these self-storage conferences where all the high-level people go that own thousands of facilities, not just units, but facilities. And the days of the CO deals are gone. So REITs are not buying CO deals anymore. They want to see stabilized occupancy now, whereas the REITs were gobbling up. All you had to do was build it, get a CO, you could sell it. 
to a REIT and make a good cap rate flip without it because they were going to come in, fill it up and operate it. They're not doing that now. They want to see it up and running. They want to see it stabilized to 50% occupancy before they're doing deals. They've backed off of it. So things are changing a little bit in the world of self-storage from the institutional buyer. They're changing the way they look at things. It's an interesting business. It's a retail business. A lot of people don't realize that self-storage is retail. So location is very important. It used to be there were only so many storage facilities around. People would put them in the paper or Craigslist or whatever, and they could get away with that. Now, especially the single mom or the older people or whatever, they don't want to go down some dark gravel road or some back area behind some industrial warehouse and go in and out and store their stuff. They want to go where Walmart is. They want to go next door to Walmart. They want to go next door to the retail stores in the corridor. So that's why you're seeing self-storage start popping up in more retail locations, because I think the statistics are 70% of the storage facilities that get leased now is by drive-by traffic. So you're seeing websites come around now where they're starting to really develop websites for self-storage. People are putting a lot of emphasis on marketing, self-storage facilities, making them look better, inviting the curb appeal, safe. People want to feel safe when they're in a self-storage facility because oftentimes you're in this huge thing and you're by yourself. And especially the indoor facilities, people don't feel safe. You want to look for the assets that people are going to feel safe in, that are well-monitored, well-lit, well-maintained in terms of these stabilized assets. Your value add is to find the ones that aren't and make them such. You can find some efficiencies in operations, Generally, you have self-storage facilities, the old mom and pops that have a manager in there that's just really not on the ball. They could care less about customer service, who's coming and going, they're getting their paycheck, right? So the first thing you do is turn that around and then you offer the ancillary services, you know, maybe U-Haul, moving in storage supplies, moving in storage business, you know, that can kind of complement it, truck rentals, things like that. So there's a lot of little things you can do to monetize self-storage facilities and add value and increase the NOI on those things. But visibility your website presence, your marketing, the curb appeal, safety, comfort. Those are the big bullet points now that people are looking for in self-storage that weren't even on the radar, you know, even 10 years ago. So you mentioned you threw out a something a little bit earlier. I wanted to clarify CL meaning certificate of occupancy, correct? Those kinds of deals. Yeah. So a CO deal in the commercial world is a lot of times those deals are struck. Let's say you're going to develop a self-storage facility or any kind of commercial property. There are and were equity funds and institutional investors, REITs, that real estate investment trust from Wall Street that would buy those deals before you even start. So they would make a contract with you at a price that you're going to build it, deliver it. So your payday was assured up front. You just had to build it and deliver it for the number that you think so you can make some money. And then that changed because a lot of people weren't making money. They were underestimating their costs, overestimating their timeline with construction costs escalating over the last three years like it has and timeframes increasing because of the labor shortage, people started switching to CO deals where you had to build it, get your certificate of occupancy to where it could start taking on tenants and renters, lessees, and then they would buy it. But they wanted it done complete because they were buying some facilities that weren't getting finished. But like I said, a couple of the last big meetings, and you can look this up and Google it if you're interested in the space, the REITs and equity funds are backing off of those CO deals. They want to see stabilized assets to at least 50% now, a lot of them. There might be a few out there, but the theme is they're backing off of those CO deals. Mm, interesting. So as far as kind of the range of size of self-storage properties that most syndicators are investing in or, or where we're not necessarily competing with REITs in terms of acquiring properties. Where does that fall right now in self-storage? My understanding is very different from like multifamily. 
Yeah. So the bigger facilities are what the REITs are after. Everybody has their different thresholds. Some will go down to 100,000 square feet. Some want to see two or 300,000 square feet. So every buyer is different on the REIT side, but typically they want the better quality assets and the bigger assets because they have a lot of capital they have to move, right? So they've got to do the bigger deals. They have to do the nicer deals because their investors want a safe haven. They're buying a bond. They want to know their money's going to be okay. Whereas the average investor should look for anything that's privately held no matter what the size is, if you've got an owner, operator, mom and pop, and if it's off the radar of the big guys, and all you got to do is go to the REIT websites, go to the big self-storage operator websites, and you'll see what their criteria is and do the opposite. Be contrary to what they're doing, go underneath what they're looking for, and then you're not competing with them. And they pay a lot of money. They've got sophisticated data and uh, analysts out there sourcing those deals, but they're not looking at the little mom and pop deals that are 50,000 square feet, 90,000 square feet, some of the smaller ones that are kind of in the backwoods a little bit or off the beaten path that are occupied and they're doing well, but you're going to have to work a little harder to keep them full and compete with the new inventory in the pipeline. The other thing I would do is I would know your market. I would know what's coming, what's in the pipeline, what are the rules, where can self-storage be developed? Is that coming online? Because, you know, and generally if you buy something that's older and it's occupied, people don't move their stuff. You know, they've had it there for years. So generally you're going to be safe. But if you have something that's a value add and you're buying something that's 50% occupied, and you've got brand new facilities that you're competing with, those new facilities are usually REIT or equity-backed facilities. They can lower rates and put you out of business. So you got to be mindful of that. You've got to watch that and just don't assume just because it's 50% vacant that you're going to be able to come in and turn it around without having to do some very heavy lifting and be extremely compelling and competitive and get the word out about that facility. And you're going to have to offer some serious incentives. But generally, if it's full or fuller, people aren't going to move. They leave their stuff in there and they forget about it and they don't want to mess with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a deal I recently invested in passively, it was acquired from mom and pops, a mom and pop owner. They had, I don't want to say mismanaged it, but they just hadn't quite kept up and they hadn't normalized a lot of their rents. So-and-so got a special on their first month's rent, but the rent was never raised to what the market rent was or what their rents they were getting on the same unit where somebody didn't get a special and it's like it was 50% to a third of what that normalized rent would be. And you come in, you make that change. And if your occupancy doesn't fall drastically, then that's a huge bump to your NOI before you really start getting in and making changes. So there's opportunities, but you need to be very careful about the supply in the market and all of that, you know, doing a lot of that market level due diligence. Yeah. And, you know, and the play down the road for some of these are you can buy some of these facilities that might be in an emerging area. And the land is prime development land. So you buy the facility, you cash flow for a little while till the land becomes more valuable than the cash flow of the facility. Then you redevelop the land or you sell it to another developer. So there are a lot of those types of deals happening in your market and mine where redevelopment plays are coming about. Sometimes it's a facility that has extra land that you could put something else on it, whether it's more self-storage. And the other thing too is to look at the trends. So it's busy in construction right now. A lot of big manufacturing resources. So the co-working thing is working in industrial as well. So small warehouse spaces, office warehouse spaces are becoming very popular. Most storage facilities, the drive-up doors are renting first. People want that exterior entrance with the roll-up door versus the interior. So you know, if you start looking at it from that respect, you know, what is the demand of small commercial office warehouse space? And you know, if you have the ability to convert or to add that to a facility that you're already doing. Sometimes, you know, obviously storing, you know, RVs and boats and motorcycles and things like that, but turning them into more office warehousey types of things and using them as small business warehouse operations. And of course, zoning comes into play there and permitting and stuff like that. But 
you got to look beyond what's there and think, okay, what is the highest and best use? Maybe you can add some mobile homes to the back of a storage facility in the area that you're in if they allow that. So maybe you can build some housing. Maybe you can do, you know, a little office building, whatever. So you got to think what else, where else, how else? And when you're looking at any property, how else can I maximize this property to its highest and best use? And or what is the highest and best use of it? Maybe five years or 10 years down the road, even 20 years sometimes, you know, it could be your generational. You leave it set up for your children that maybe it's an emerging area that in 30 years might be worth whatever. So those are the types of things you can look at. So sometimes it's not always what you're looking at today right in front of you. Cool. So we've covered self-storage. I'd like to, while we've got you, you mentioned add some mobile homes to your self-storage park, maybe if it works in your specific area. So mobile home parks in general, let's hit that a little bit. So I mean, we're in Virginia. There's a lot of them in the more rural parts of Virginia, there's many throughout the country in the rural areas, but municipalities for the most part, not across the board, but for the most part are pretty anti-mobile home park. We've all probably watched Trailer Park Boys, and there's a lot of that perception around mobile home park tenants. It's not necessarily true. Right. Especially when you go to the Southeast. I mean, there's some very nice mobile home parks. I mean, just neighborhoods, paved streets, sidewalks, light posts, even around here, Richmond, you know, Charlottesville, the Virginia Beach area. There's some very nice ones. And then there's some really ugly ones, you know, right in the heart of Virginia Beach by the oceanfront. So, yeah, most municipalities do not want mobile home parks for rent, but they don't mind manufactured housing communities for sale. So it's really interesting. You got to come down, put them on a foundation and, you know, either own or finance them out or sell them or rent them, whatever you want to do. But you got to rent the chattel personal property, which is what a mobile home is. It's personal property. It's not real property. So there's a couple of different ways that you can get a development through the pipeline. But generally, and like you said, in most areas, you're not going to get something approved, but you but you can do the value add. There's a lot of parks that have extra space that can be developed out because it's already by right. It's already part of the original park. They're very good. So what I like about mobile home parks, I don't like to own the units. What I'd rather do is owner finance the units. If you're buying a park and there's some park-owned homes, the best thing to do is just owner finance it to those people if they're interested. If not, then you got to do what you got to do. But you're renting dirt. So for the most part, it's a very affordable rent. People aren't going to leave. They can't just pick up and move the trailer at an effective cost. So they're generally, if you've got a good park, they're generally going to be good tenants. They pay on time. And it's your, just your average workers, right? It's, you know, it's people that can't afford a house or an apartment or a townhouse, unfortunately, Wages have not kept up with housing costs. You know, we're in a big problem all across the country right now where workforce housing is at the top of everybody's agenda politically. So we might see a change in mobile home park development at some point. If it becomes a big enough problem and there's enough pressure and enough people talking about it on the political scene, it might be enough to start making a change there because I think they're great homes. There's nothing wrong with them. And Kid Rock lives in a double wide, right? He's, <laughs> he's, he's like, hey, man. I got my jet. I can get around the world. If my double wide blows away, I just put another one out there. So he doesn't want to have to take care of a mansion. So that's a true story, you know, that he talks about. So anyways, you know, there's nothing wrong with them. Trailers are great. Mobile homes are fantastic. They serve a niche. They're affordable. It's your Walmart worker. It's your circuit or your Best Buy worker, your restaurant worker, families, good families, you know, a lot of times. And then there are the ones, unfortunately, that do have the trouble. And those are easy to turn around. So, you know, that's what a lot of people are afraid of, a mobile home park that has problems, maybe a drug problem, maybe whatever it is. And apartments are the same way. And I tell you that one of the easiest ways to do that, here's a nugget for everybody if they're out there and they're looking at something like that and they're just afraid. One of the first things you can do when you buy a troubled park or a troubled building that has a drug problem and it's a known drug problem is have a rebranding idea in place, okay, first and foremost, 
But the first thing you do when you take over is you have the management company send notices out to everybody that you've been told that there's a drug problem. You're aware of it. The police are aware of it. They're bringing the dogs and the narcotic squad and they're going to do searches and they're going to search the entire park, the entire complex, the entire neighborhood, whatever it is. And just want to make the tenants aware, make everybody aware of this is happening this week and there will be an exodus. <laughs> you know? And then the other thing you do is you work with the police force and you set up a unit for them, an apartment or a mobile home park. So after that initial sweep, you keep the presence there and then you do your rebranding. And then that eliminates that because they're going to get out of there. They're not going to fight it. They're not going to, they're just going to go. That's how you turn a drug problem around or a crime problem around in a uh, mobile home park or an apartment building quickly and efficiently. And then you, you have to have that rebranding plan in place where you replace the signage, the curb appeal, the landscaping, the paint, you know, you got to turn that place around so people know and you get the tenants on board. Here's what we've done. And here's what we're doing. We want a safe, clean place for you to live. Tell all your friends. We say no, no drugs allowed, no crime allowed. We will crack down. We're going to have a police presence to make sure this doesn't happen again. So that's how you turn that around. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I know some folks who bought a property in one of the rougher parts of Richmond, since we're both in Virginia. Shout out to Phil. They dedicated a unit to the, the local police. They, I think they even said they set up an Xbox in there. So if the cops are patrolling by, they want to take a break, they can go in there and, and play. But yeah, as people, folks are always trying to buy on the line or just pass the line and then, you know, hopefully move the line. Now, while we've got you, let's talk about office investing a little bit since we touched on that. That is certainly an area that I know effectively nothing about. So, you know, can we get a little primer on office investing? Most people aren't talking about it, at least in the syndication community. So catch me up to speed. Make me an expert here. So office, again, it is an asset type. It's a type of commercial real estate. And then within office, you have A, B, C, and D. You know, it's all based on age and type of construction. And office is going through a transition lately as well. As we see, it's a lot more open space now where people are just doing open space, cubicles, workstations, collaborations, things like that. So that landscape is changing. And there's debate out there how effective an open office environment is versus private closed offices. So a lot of them have a mix of both within a company. They're offering both solutions for their employees because different people work different ways. So it's really interesting how that landscape is and has changed. But office in and of itself, it can be a great product. But again, you have to watch where you own and what you own and make sure you've got credit rated tenants. First and foremost, typically it's going to be triple net, meaning they pay the taxes, insurance and maintenance with office. Sometimes you offer janitorial services. So some of the differences between office and other types of real estate, commercial real estate, is you might have a, a janitorial service that you offer to take care of the bathrooms, restrooms, things like that. Sometimes the tenants have their own. They have to take care of their own. The mechanical systems are typically serviced by the owner of the property, whereas in some retail spaces like restaurants and retail, they have to service their own. Well, they have to service the unit. Not, it's not theirs, but the unit that serves their space, they have to service that. But in an office building, it's usually up to the owner. So the operating costs are a little bit different in those respects. And depending on the size of it, Sometimes you need a porter, a building custodian, full-time or even part-time, whereas in the other asset classes you may or, may not, or types, you may, not, may or may not need that. But in general, the biggest thing you got to watch out for in office, just like retail, is turnover. So it can be very expensive to turn over tenants because each different office user might need something different and they need the space reconfigured or built out. And they're generally now, office is one of the most pressure out there right now. Just because of the whole home office thing and the, and the workspace, open space type co-working space movement. 
So it's under a lot of pressure. So landlords are expected to give a lot on rent concessions and TI, which is tenant improvement allowance, meaning they will give you money per square foot or dollar amount or whatever it is to reconfigure that space to suit your needs or they'll do it for you. So it's very expensive. It's typically like a lot of people don't realize. I mean, it's 20 bucks to $100 a square foot in most markets to do a moderate paint, carpet, ceiling tile. You know, it's 20, 30 bucks a square foot minimum to turn a space around all the way up to 150 to $200 to just build out a nice office, depending on how they want it done and glass and this and that. And I mean, you can spend whatever you want, but the average is between 20 to 30 to 100 for office buildouts. And so it's not a cheap endeavor. So you want longer term leases. You want to make sure that that's factored into your balance sheet and into your capital expenditure budget so that you're setting those costs aside. And generally what landlords will do is they'll refinance the property and pull some of those tenant improvement costs out of the refinance. So office is under pressure. There's some good deals out there. What you want to look for in office is some of the bigger buildings are now being repurposed and repurposed into senior living, repurposed into offices, repurposed into co-working spaces, repurposed into apartments, condos, things like that. So like, you know, around Richmond, you can see a few of them going on right now where some old office buildings are becoming apartments and condos, especially like in the museum district, some of the old brick office buildings. And then you get out into the office industrial parks where there are glass buildings and where it's surrounded by residential and turning those into like condo apartments, you know, things like that, or medical centers or senior living. So a lot of that stuff is kind of trending across the country right now. So it's an interesting time with the way things are changing. And I like office, you know, it just depends on where you're at and what you're doing. And then there's some really great office parks that just aren't going anywhere, you know, where you need, you know, there's big companies that need office space and they can't outsource everything. So there's still going to be a core opportunity there in most bigger markets, but in your smaller markets, be careful. Hmm, Interesting. What is the best investment you ever made? The best investment I ever made is education in myself, developing myself, educating myself, pouring into myself. I've spent a few hundred thousand dollars in 23 years. Aside from that, on a real estate standpoint, I did a wholesale flip down the Outer Banks of North Carolina and made almost half a million dollars on one deal with no money out of my pocket. So that was the best quick wholesale deal I've ever had. But the best investment over time has been in my education and my own personal and professional development. Awesome. I get that answer a lot. I might need to just spray paint it somewhere behind me. So, you know, the best investment I ever made is was in myself, my own education. And I still make it every day. It never stops. You know, I'm always, I'm a lifelong learner. I have no music on my phone. Never had a song on my iPod. It's always been books, podcasts, audiobooks, tapes, personal and professional development. And, you know, I might listen to some music here or there, but if I have five minutes to spend pouring something into my head, it's going to be something that's going to improve my life. Awesome. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment you ever made? Restaurants. <laughs> and I've got a restaurant background, but I've lost some money in restaurants and it was a passion of mine. I love it. Love food, love cooking. And you know, when you're doing well over here, you think, oh, I can do well over there. And so I've lost some money on restaurants. Yeah. The statistics on restaurant investing are not good. No. And I know the business, I know the numbers, but it just didn't work out. And so thank goodness it was a short stint a couple of times. I lost less money the second time than I did the first time. <laughs> so I made money and I had a couple of restaurants that were very profitable over time, but it's you're squeezing nickels out of pennies and it's just such a low margin business. And it's so competitive now that uh, it's just not even worth the time, energy and effort. Mm, good to know. My favorite question I ask here at the end is, what is the most important lesson you've learned in investing? The most important lesson I've learned in investing is that you don't have to do 
anything. You don't have to do a deal. A lot of people will get caught up in, man, I just, I got to get in the game. I got to get in the game. I got to do a deal. You don't have to do anything. You can walk away and leave opportunity on the table for everybody. So the people that lose are the ones that are in a hurry and just have to do something. They feel like it's a deal of a lifetime. If I don't do it, I'm going to miss out. The deal of a lifetime comes along every day. Every day, there's a deal of a lifetime. So they're out there everywhere, all day, every day in every market. I don't care what the market's doing. There's always deals. There's always opportunities. So that's the first one. And like I said, the second one is making sure everybody wins. You've got to be a win-win. You got to make sure that you're serving others, that you're looking out for the best interest of everybody involved. If you're always looking out for yourself, at the end of the day, that's all you're going to have. Absolutely. I like that. I like both of those. Uh, the, the first one, especially, I talked to a lot of folks who want to get in passive investing, usually syndication investing. Uh, you know, I love talking about it. And I just talked to a gentleman yesterday, prior to when we were recording this, who's interested in getting into the business, getting into a passive investing in syndications. And he's like, I just feel like I'm missing out. I need to get invested. And like, do do what you want, do what, what is right for you, make your own decision. But you know, nobody's forcing you to make these investments, get educated, get to meet people, look at a lot of deals, make sure you know what you're doing because you can invest with the best people, you know, find the best people, but nobody likes your money more than you do. So take your time, find the right people, make the right decisions, know what you're investing in, know who you're investing with, and nobody's making you do any deal, good or bad. Just wait. The deal you're going to regret the most is the bad one you did, not the one you missed, most likely. So there's a fine line between sense of urgency, taking action, and then just going for the sake of going. So you got to watch the analysis paralysis and never knowing, you know, is there a right time? Is there a best time? I will say two things. So it's more important to be able to predict the top than the bottom. Okay. It's more important to call the top than the bottom. That's number one. Number two, oftentimes we think it's what we know that makes us all the money and creates the opportunity. It's what you don't know, or it's what you know not to do. That's the key. Knowing what not to do, knowing when not to get in, knowing when to walk away is more valuable and more important than knowing what to do. Way more valuable. And the most dangerous thing is thinking you know you're right, but you're not. That's where you get in trouble. So approach everything from the standpoint of I'm ready to take action. I have sense of urgency, so I'm serious, but I'm going to look at this deal, this opportunity, and this operator, and I'm going to ask, how am I wrong? And that's how you have to look at it and approach it. And then when you look at it that way, how is this deal wrong? How am I wrong? How are they wrong? And approach it from that respect. Then everything's going to answer itself. And if all the boxes check, then you're okay. But be aware of where we are on the market cycle. We're at a peak everywhere. Stock market, real estate, we're at the top. We might have a little bit more upside, but it's more important now to understand where you are versus trying to predict a bottom and get in there. And again, there's deals in every market cycle. You know, we all chased it up prior to 2009. And then, you know, I chased it back down, meaning I was doing speculative development. So I just adjusted the values of what I was willing to pay and what I was selling for as the market declined. So I might have been willing to, you know, let's just say this project was going to be worth 10 million at the end of the day today. Well, next year I knew it was going to be worth nine. So I factored that into my equation and I chased the market down. So that's kind of what you got to do. You got to look at it from that standpoint. When you're underwriting a deal, a lot of people are underwriting under, I can raise rents. I can refinance and reduce rates and do this, do that, add value. That's great. But what happens if you can't? So when I look at a deal, I underwrite it. I'm going to have to reduce rents to be competitive. So that's how I look at a deal. And if I can't reduce rents and be competitive, and if I can't have the value and the interest rate that works five years from now, as well as it does today, then I don't do the deal. So that's kind of, that's just how I do it. 
That's great. I love it. Greg, where can people get in touch with you? Where can they learn more? So gregdickerson.com, all my information's on there, email, phone number, all that. Feel free to reach out. This is what I do. I love helping people. I've been at it 23 years. You know, I coach, mentor, I do consulting, I get involved in deals. So I'm always looking for deals and opportunities and trying to help people out. So it's kind of my mission in life now. I'm very broad in my type of real estate and asset class because I've been localized geographically from the Outer Banks up to DC and Maryland. That's been my market. I haven't had to step outside that region because there's just so much opportunity and we are well insulated between federal government, state government, the military, UVA with the university and all that. So those are great markets. I've never had to go outside. So, you know, like a lot of people say, well, shouldn't I focus on one asset class? Well, what I would say is you can singularly focus on an asset type and class, but then you have to go broad in your geography. So you got to go everywhere. If you want to do nothing but class B apartments, 200 units in, you know, primary markets, well, you got to go all across the country. But if you're going to be geographically limited within a market or two, then you have to broaden your asset type and class and base. And so that's what I did. That's what I've done. And that's why I've been able to get exposed to so many different things. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been very unique. And I love doing deals and I love the different challenges of the different asset classes. The only thing I haven't done is a hotel and I'm working on that. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And another thing, uh, you're very active on bigger pockets. So anybody that's out there on bigger pockets, uh, that's how we got in touch and you're always dropping the knowledge and value bombs. So just like you did this whole nearly hour we've been talking. So anyway, thank you for joining us and thanks everyone for listening. Everything is going to, all the links and everything going to be in the show notes and hope you'll have a great week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.